Well, all right, we're back in the book of Genesis. Is anybody excited? All right, I promise we won't do the whole genealogy every week, guys. <laughs> but uh, I think what you'll see today is there's actually some stuff in there that every word of Scripture is God breathed and useful, and that is going to set us up to understand the story we're getting into this morning. Um, if you are new with us in the last year, uh, we are in. Uh, year two of kind of a four-year plan to get through the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So much of what happens in the Bible comes out of this book. And so what we said we would do each fall is take a chunk of the story and work our way through it. And uh, to catch you up on what's happened in the story so far, last fall we kicked off uh, with the opening words of the book that say, you've probably heard this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now it's a familiar statement to us, but when that was written, I mean, that was an all-out assault on the ideas about creation in the ancient world. And we said last fall, um, that confronts really every worldview in every culture, including our own. Uh, we live in a day that says creation was an accident, um, that you're not the special creation of a creator, you're just space dust cruising your way through the cosmos on your way to nothingness. And the book of Genesis steps into that worldview and says, man, that's just depressing and sad. And not only that, it's not true. Um, the Bible claims that there is a God who has always existed in a perfect community of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we saw in the opening pages of Genesis is out of an overflow of joy within himself, God spills over onto the canvas of reality. Uh, and he, he's happy, and so he creates. He says, let there be this, let there be that, to share the life and love he has always known among himself with his creation. And for a couple of chapters, it's beautiful. Um, it works exactly as it's made to be. The cosmos reflects the harmony of God and the life in him. The lion lies down with the lamb, and it doesn't end badly for the lamb. Um, our first parents uh, are walking with God in the garden. They're naked and unashamed. They're having a great time. Life is as it was created to be. But then Satan enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, and Satan hates God. Uh, he hates the life in God. He hates uh, humanity, which is God's special creation to be his image bearers in the world. He can't stand to see humans flourishing. And so he uh, tempts our first parents and really tricks them into believing that if they want to experience fullness of life, they've got to get out from underneath God's leadership in their life. And so in this tragic story, our first parents take from the forbidden tree, they rebel against God, and in that moment, the entire cosmos is fractured. Um, immediately in that story, we see the first marriage fight. So if you want to know the origins of why marriage can be hard, Genesis explains that. Um, if you want to know why life can be hard, just keep reading. Genesis chapter 4, we get the first murder. And then after that, we meet this charming guy named Lamech who takes two wives. He thinks he's a really big deal, sings a song about himself. He's the world's first narcissist. Chauvinists think that women exist for his pleasure. And he creates all of this injustice and evil. And his kids follow in his suit. And things spiral downwards and get worse and worse and worse. The more eastward we move from Eden, the worse things get. Until finally in Genesis chapter 11, we landed at this city called Babylon 
where the residents um, were trying to build this tower, um, trying to reach their way back into heaven and claw down the life of Eden again. And if you ever needed biblical rationale for trash talk, Genesis 11 is your chapter. God looks at the pinnacle of human engineering and achievement. He looks at the human progress we've made over centuries since he made us. And he looks down at that and he says, that little thing down there? Man, I can't even see that from my throne up here in heaven. And so God grabs a few angels, comes down to the city of Babylon, and he sees this tower they have built. And what he says is, guys, this tower, it's not very impressive But this city is full of injustice and evil. And so out of compassion and love, and hear me, to protect the vulnerable, God judges the people at Babel. He confuses their language so they can't talk to one another anymore. Because here's what we're seeing in Genesis, that even when humanity tries to do the right thing, to unite for a great purpose, if we do it apart from our creator and the author of life, it all goes badly. We might build a great tower, but we push down the vulnerable in the process. And God comes down and says, guys, that's not progress. And that's where we ended last year right around Christmas time. And then we took a break from Genesis because that is really dark, right? But this is what these opening chapters of the Bible are here to do. Is they're, they're here to explain our condition. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is really messed up. And I would not trust a religion that wouldn't explain why it's so messed up. I wouldn't trust a religion that's all sugar plums and fairies and life is easy. No, the Bible's saying life is hard because sin is real and we've rebelled against our creator. That's Genesis 3 to 11. It's very dark. God is very quiet. But here in Genesis chapter 12, the story begins to take a turn is God begins to step into the story and begins to work his plan to redeem and restore what was lost in Eden. And it all starts with what one theologian calls a story that is a preview of the entire rest of the Bible. Are you ready to get into it? All right, Genesis chapter 12, we will pick it up in verse 1, says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." God comes to this guy named Abram. Uh, this, uh, this guy, Abram, he will later be renamed to Abraham. Um, and yeah, it, it's that Abraham. This is the father of the Jewish nation. This is the guy that the New Testament praises as the father of all who would trust God and have faith in him and a great model for us to learn how to live by faith from. This is the guy. And God shows up to this guy And what he says to him is three things. Here's where the whole story begins. And this is what we're going to be looking at this fall, is the story of Abraham, the father of faith, how to live by faith. And it all begins with the story of his crazy call from God. And and I call that crazy intentionally because you got to look at this thing. Look at what God says to him. He says three things. Number one, he says, go. Uh, Go 
leave behind your father's house and everything that you find familiar. Leave behind your comfort zone. Leave behind your iPhone and all of the uh, comforts and amenities that you have. And go to the land that I will show you. Why? Number two, because I will bless you. I will make your name great. Um, Does that sound familiar to anybody? I will make your name great. All right, it's been a while since we've been in Genesis. Look back at chapter 11, verse 4. God's not just spitballing here. Listen to this. This is uh, the scene at the Tower of Babel um, where humanity is partnering together to try to reach back into heaven. And here's what they say in verse 4. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. See, what God is doing here is saying, hey, the dream of Babylon was to make a great name for yourselves, to feel like you have accomplished something and have a certain amount of wealth and security, but that dream of Babylon didn't work out. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you what you were longing for at Babylon. I'm going to give you the life that you are longing for. You tried to make your name great. That ended very badly for everyone. But now, if you will go and leave I will actually give you the life you long for. I will make your name great. He says, I will bless you. This term blessing, um, it means uh, to enhance life. And so what he's saying is, Abram, go leave behind what's comfortable and follow me into the unknown and I will Make your name great. I'll give you the life you're longing for. I will enhance your life. This is the promise of Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. You can enter into the life that you were made for. And and just like we saw in the opening pages of the Bible, God doesn't bless us just so we can be a cul-de-sac of blessing and have his blessing terminate on us. But no, part three, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is what's going on here. This is God's plan to restore the world. After very dark chapters, God steps onto the scene and says, I've got a plan to fix it. I'm going to bless you. And through blessing you, you are going to bring my blessing, my redemption, and the life of Eden back to my creation. That call is crazy. Um, I think we miss how crazy that is um, because most of us have some inkling of how this story turns out. Like, even if you don't have a background in church, you've probably heard of a guy named Abraham, who's the father of a a people group that's still here, the Jewish people today. Um, we, We have some inkling of where this is going, and so I think we fail to see what a crazy call this is. But um, while Abraham will end up a mighty man of faith, uh, he doesn't start out that way. And, And this is where I just want to point out some things from that genealogy we heard read earlier. Look at his biography as it's presented to us. There's three parts of God's call, so I'll give you three reasons this is a crazy call, because I'm also Baptist. So three is our magic number here. Look at number one. Look at where he's from. We read that his homeland is Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldeans. Uh, That is the land of Babylon. So remember what happened in Babylon. This is the site of the Tower of Babel. This was not a good place. This was a city full of injustice and oppression and evil. And I I want you to catch this, that when God rises up 
to restore the earth and to bring good news to the cosmos. He doesn't go to a righteous man like Melchizedek, who we'll meet in a few chapters, who that guy's legit. He's a king. He's got a great army. He loves and has some reverence for the creator God. And he even lives in the city of Jerusalem, which if you know your Bible, that's a pretty good resume. But God doesn't come to Melchizedek. Um, he doesn't even go to Job, who most commentators think is probably alive around this time. God goes into the heart of darkness, into the pit of depravity. And in that city of injustice and evil, he grabs a hold of a man and says, I want you to leave this and I'm going to bless you so much that that blessing will flow through you to the world around you. That's crazy. This is not the guy that you would start a rescue mission with. This is the guy at the center of injustice and evil. But this is what God always does. He grabs a hold of broken, sinful, flawed people, and he gives us a new life. And through blessing us and giving us a new life, that life is meant to overflow to the world around us. It's crazy, but this is exactly the kind of thing the God of the Bible does. And here's one of the first stories where we really see this. Um, I also saw this a couple weeks ago. Um, I went to a wedding and saw some extended family members who have not seen me in several years. And they asked, hey, what are you up to now? And I said, huh, I'm a pastor now. And they were like, Jesus. And I was like, yes, exactly. Um, but, but their reaction, like, it, it, it was actually warranted because uh, the Chad Francis that they knew before Jesus grabbed a hold of my life, he's not someone you would have pegged for ministry. And look, I'm not claiming that I've just arrived and I am perfect now. What I'm saying is the Pastor Chad you know today is not the same man that Jesus called 12, 13 years ago. Amen. Praise God. And it's even more true of Abram. The man of faith that we know, that's what happens after God's grace transforms his life. When God calls him, he's a godless man living in a godless land. He's not the guy you would think to call for this, but this is exactly what God does. He's been doing it from the beginning. He's still doing it today. Like I drove in this morning getting ready to preach, listening to Eminem praise the name of Jesus. If there's hope for Eminem, there's hope for you. So if you're like, oh, I, I don't know if this Christian thing's for me. I've got so much junk in my life. Like, there's hope for Eminem. There's hope for you. If there's hope for me, there's hope for you. If there's hope for this godless man living in a godless land, there is hope for you. That's the first reason this call is crazy. And this is what God loves to do. He calls us by grace. He calls the undeserved. This is what makes the God of the Bible unique. But it's not just that. That's the first thing. The second thing is his age. Um, some of you, you didn't get my Eminem reference. You'll get this one. Uh, the text says he was 75 years old. Now I'm going to be gentle here. <sighs> Did you notice anything about the ages in the genealogies as they were read? They lived a long time. Did you notice the ages started falling from the time of the flood? by the time you get to Abraham. So in chapter 11, one of the things we're meant to see is people went from having children in their hundreds to their 20s and 30s. The point being, Abraham, some of you are like, he's a spring chicken, maybe, but he's well past the age that people were having children at this time in the world. 
And so when God says, I'm going to bring from you a mighty nation, this brother doesn't have kids. Like, how is this going to work out? This guy seems way too old for that particular activity, though he would be very good at other activities because he has so much wisdom he has gleaned in life. I told you I'd be gentle. And, and it's not just his age. We learn this about his wife, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, she gets renamed Sarah. She too is a mighty woman of faith. We're going to learn some great things about her in the book of Genesis. Um, the first thing we learn about her here is rather tragic. Uh, she is barren. Um, what that means is she's not able to have kids. And in that culture, um, man, they, y- you would have been viewed, this is wrong, this isn't right, but in that culture, you would have been viewed as worthless if you couldn't have kids. It would have been expected Abraham would go and pick another wife and move on. It was godless, it was evil. Remember, we said life apart from God, not a good thing. But looking at this just from a human perspective, this guy is too old, and even if by some miracle he could, his wife is unable to conceive. And yet God comes to this couple and says, from you, I'm going to birth a mighty nation. And so look, I know there's some of you this morning that you feel like, I'm too old to have an impact for Jesus. Uh, my best days are behind me. Maybe you feel like I'm not gifted enough or I don't, I don't bring the right things to the table to be useful in a church. And what I hope you'll see in this story this morning is that's not how God sees you. God looks at this couple that by every worldly metric would have been rejected as doing anything useful. And he looks at them and he says, I can work with that. Because with God... You're never too barren to be a blessing. And if you're not dead yet, you're not done yet. And so from human standard, this call is crazy. He's calling this pagan guy who's well past the age of bearing children. His wife can't even have children. And yet this is so what our God does. is he calls the unlikely so that he can show the power of his grace and his goodness and how he's willing to save and work through absolutely anyone. And as the New Testament will say, it is often those that the world finds insignificant that are the greatest in his kingdom. And we see glimpses of that right here in this crazy call. He banks his plan for redemption on this unlikely couple. He says, go, leave all that you know, and that's your job. You leave, and here's my job. I will do the impossible. I'm the God of the impossible. I I know you look at you and you think, how could this happen? But you don't worry about that. You worry about following me. I'll worry about doing the impossible. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you a blessing, and I will bank my plans for the cosmos on what I do through you. What would you do if God showed up to you and said that? Here's what Abram does. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. Abram's response is he goes, just like God said. And for everything we said just a moment ago about God's call being crazy, like, let's have some real talk. What Abram just did is crazy. He left his father's home, which in our culture, that's considered like a rite of passage, like you're growing up in the world. Like some of you are like, I want my kids to memorize this. This needs to become their life verse for the year to go leave your parents' home and forge your own way. But that's not how this culture worked. In this culture, your home, kind of that family connection is where you found your sense of identity and security. And so when God says to go and leave your father's home, he's not saying go off to college, have a great time, reinvent yourself. What he's saying is leave your source of identity, Leave the thing that makes you feel secure and go. Where? Oh, you know, to the land I'll show you. Don't worry about where, just go. That helps. Um, here's, Here's what we're seeing here. This is a call to follow God into the unknown. Someone said that this week, into the unknown, and I couldn't get the Frozen song out of my head. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you are richly blessed. This is a call to follow God into new territory. He doesn't know what's going to come. God says, your job is to leave and to start the journey. My job is to complete it. You let me be God. You be human. Follow me into the unknown. Now, I can only imagine what's... I was trying to put myself in Abram's shoes this week, because I think that's one of the things that historical narrative is meant to do in the Bible, is we're meant to put ourselves there and say, what would I have done? What's God want to say to me? What's going on in my life that maybe he wants to speak to me through this story? And I was just trying to put myself there. And I'm like, man, if if I'm Abram, on the one hand, this call is crazy. Like, how gracious is God that he would choose me? Like, this is amazing that the creator of all things that just judged all my people here for all of our wickedness wants to bless me and he can fix the world and give us what we were going for through me. On the one hand, that's a crazy gracious call. On the other hand, he's kind of asking a lot. He wants me to leave my father's house. He wants me to leave everything I know. crazy what he's asking of me. But again, this is so like God. If the crazy call is like God, so is the crazy response he asks for. Like, one of the things I've been hearing increasingly in recent years as a pastor is we have this misconception where I keep hearing people say, God would never ask that of me. God would never ask me to give up that thing in my life. That's too central to my identity. That's too important to me. If God loved me, he wouldn't ask me to leave something that makes me feel so secure and safe and comfortable. And I'm like, have you ever read the Bible? Like, what about this book would give you the notion that God wouldn't ask you to leave something that seems good, that seems comfortable, that's central to your identity to go on to something greater? I mean, this is one of the first great stories of faith, and here we see it. 
This is what God does with Abram, with everyone that follows. It's what he does in my life. I know it's what he does in your life. God shows up in our lives and he chooses us by grace and it rocks our world. We're like, are you kidding me? That's crazy. He shows up with this incredible invitation and says, follow me. I don't care about your baggage and your sin. I love you in spite of that. My love is bigger than those things. So come and follow me and I'll lead you into the life you were looking for. And by definition, God's call into our life is to lead us somewhere new. It's not to leave us where we are as we are and sprinkle a little religion on top. What Christianity is, is it's the invitation into a new life, a life of faith that takes you places that you never would have taken yourself. And look, if you follow a God who can't show up in your life, and disrupt things, and disturb your life, if you worship a God who can't call you to give up something that you like or that you love, then look right at me. You are not worshiping the living God of the Bible. You might be following a God of your imagination, and you might call that God Jesus, but it ain't the real, living, resurrected Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up in our lives and say, I'll be your co-pilot. You tell me the things that are central to you, and then I'll try to work around that. Jesus says, I have the life that you long for. I will love you in spite of all of your failings. You want in or not? What we're seeing in this story is that God's call is crazy gracious. It is also crazy scary. And if we can't be honest about that, I think we're doing our disself, disservice, ourselves a disservice and everyone we love a disservice. Jesus would say this in his public ministry. Hey, before you come follow me, count the cost. He doesn't want us to enter into a relationship with him under false pretenses. He says, I'm going to give you more than you could ever imagine. It's crazy gracious, but I'm also going to ask a lot of you. It's because I love you, by the way, I'm asking this of you. It's not like I get something out of the equation. But this is the tension that we see cover to cover in the Bible. God's call is crazy gracious. He will love anybody and lavish his affection on anyone who would call in his name by faith. But if he loves you, he will disturb your life and disrupt the things in your life to lead you beyond the things that you think will lead to life into the things that he knows will lead you into life. And so at this point, Abram has a choice to make. He can say, uh, you know, God, I want to follow you, but if I'm going to become a great nation, I mean, the only chance I have of doing that is here at home where everyone knows me. So I'll follow you, but I'm going to like half do it. I'm going to stay here and I, I know what you said and I'll grow in my theology, but I'm not actually going to obey you. He, he could do that. But Abram doesn't do that. He leaves everything. And according to the Bible, this this response of Abraham is one of the best ways to understand faith. Um, Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we read this, pick it up in verse 8. This is the New Testament giving commentary on this story. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, 
not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, I think the reason that the authors of the New Testament love this story so much is because what we see cover to cover in the Bible is there's two ways to live your life. You can live your life according to what you see, or you can live your life by trusting what God says. You can live your life according to what you see. And we've already seen how that works out in the Garden of Eden. Eve saw the fruit of the tree, and she saw in her human perspective that it would be good for eating, and so she took of it, and what happened? Everything went badly after that moment. And if you've ever felt judgmental about Eve, the Bible says that you and I do the same thing. That to be a human broken by sin is to at times think things are going to be good that will destroy us. And so you can live, you have, God has given you a will to decide and choose. You can live according to what you see in your wisdom, or you can live according to what God says. Again, this is the same Choice our first parents had in the garden. God said the tree's going to kill you. It's going to bring lots of death. Satan said it's going to bring you lots of life. And it's a choice we make every day. And this is the difference between living by what the Bible calls flesh and faith. Living by the flesh is depending on human ingenuity and human achievements and what we understand. And living by faith is trusting in what God sees and what God understands. And these are two very different ways to live your life. And what we see in the story of Abraham, I mean, you can live your life by trusting the flesh and what you see. But if you will do that, what we see in the story of Abraham is you would keep yourself insulated from God's plans that he has for you, the wonderful plans he has for you, plans for hope and a future, plans to prosper you and bring you the life you look for. If you want to do things your way, you will keep yourself insulated from all of that blessing because God wants to lead you in the life beyond that which you would otherwise have. And so the two choices we have moment by moment is to uh, live by the flesh, and to say, God, I don't want the life you have. I think I've got this figured out. Thank you. Or we can live by faith. To say, God, I don't know how at 75 with a barren wife I'm going to have all of these kids. That does not make sense to me as a human being. But you know what, God? I'm going to trust you. Because I think maybe there's something you see that I don't see. That's the definition of faith. And, and if you're thinking this morning, that sounds crazy, then you're paying attention. Um, Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, will write in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 14, um, that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we should be pitied above all people. This is when you know you're getting to actual biblical faith that you've put yourself on the line, that you've taken such a risk that if God isn't real, if God doesn't come through, then your life is over and should be pitied by everyone. That is faith. And so catch me, anything less than that is the flesh. 
and look, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that faith is irrational. God gave you a mind. He wants you to work through these things. There's plenty of reasons to trust God. We'll see in Abram's story why he would. But what it does mean is that faith is an active trust that puts, when you express faith, it puts you in a place of vulnerability and trust to say, if God isn't real, if he doesn't come through, my life is over. That is the place of faith. Faith trusts what God says, not what our eyes see. And what we see in this story is that is the path to the life that we long for. A life of blessing, a life of meaning, a life of legacy. Um, Look at verse 7. The story continues on. Abram leaves everything, and then God appears to Abram um, in a great oak tree, which I... I just love that detail. I'm like, yes! That one felt like that was here for us. I'm sure there's theological reasons. There are. Um, But he appears to him at a great oak tree. And there, um, Abram builds an altar to the Lord. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And what we read in verse 8 is he keeps journeying. He keeps going. It happens again that he uh, calls on the name of the Lord again. That he calls on the name of the Lord again. And here's the point we need to see in all of this. Faith isn't a one-time decision we make. It's not like Abraham had this great moment where he said, I'm going to leave, and that was it. According to this story, what we see from the outset is faith is a decision we make every day. That he left his homeland, and then he continued journeying on. He continued calling on the name of the Lord. He continued building altars and crying out to God and saying, God, you got to come through for me because Sarah thinks I'm crazy right now, and I'm starting to doubt myself. And so he calls on the name of the Lord, and he continues doing this. Faith isn't a one-time decision. It's a, it's a choice we have to make every day. And and this is what we're going to see throughout the story of Abram. He's going to continue calling on the name of the Lord. He's going to continue trusting what God says instead of what he can see. And great things will come from this man's life. Um, This is where I love, Corey Ten Boone has a definition of faith that I think is so helpful for this story. She says, faith is a fantastic adventure in trusting him. And this is exactly what we see in the Abraham story, that as Abraham steps out in faith, his life becomes one of adventure, and it's fantastic, but it's not risk for the risk's sake. It's not like he just went skydiving or bought a motorcycle or threw all of his money in the stock market. It's a fantastic adventure trusting the one that he said, I know he can give me a homeland. I know he's worthy of my trust. And look, I don't want to oversell it. Um... There are highs in Abram's story, and there are lows in Abram's story. Uh, Like, we're going to see some of this next week, where it happens not once, but twice in his life, that he will, out of fear, try to pawn his wife off into the harem of a pervert. Which I'm like, if that happened once, like, who are we to judge? We've never been in that culture. You don't know the pressure you would feel with an evil king eyeing your wife. But the second time, I have to be like, come on, Abe. Seriously? You did this before. You did it again. Like, there are weak moments in Abraham's story. But this is is why I love the Bible. It's the most honest book ever written. 
doesn't clean up his story. Even as he continues to walk with God, he sins, he struggles, he stumbles. But here is the point. He never forgets God's gracious call to him back in chapter 12. And so he keeps getting back up. He keeps calling on the name of the Lord. He keeps moving. He keeps stepping out in faith. He keeps following God into the unknown. And yeah, it's imperfect. Yeah, it's more of a zigzag story than it would have been if you know, he had just trusted God perfectly. But it's a very human story with a very divine God making a new kind of human. And the promise of this story is that he can do the same for you and me as well. That by the time you get to the New Testament, we read that Abraham is the father of all who have faith. That doesn't mean, that's not a, uh, a physical reality. That doesn't mean all of a sudden we become Jewish. What it's saying is in this moment, God is starting a new spiritual family. That rather than being built on the flesh, is built on faith and trust in God. And this is the family through which God will bring his kingdom into the world to restore the world, to bring us back into Eden and the life that we were made for. And you can get in on this as we call on the name of the God of Abraham. And what's his name, church? Jesus. Someone was here last week. I said that was a safe bet. Yeah, it's Jesus. Some of you are like, man, my Jewish friends would beg to differ. Okay, well, let, let's just end by chatting about that because um, there's an important story of the Gospel of John that regardless of your faith background, you're going to have to deal with. Um, Jesus uh, shows up in the Gospel of John and, and he starts saying things that they thought were crazy. He starts saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you're down and out and looked down on by the world, well, God sees you and his kingdom belongs to you. And he starts forgiving sins and inviting sinners into relationship and calling them to follow him in spite of their resume. And the religious leaders saw this and they hated this. It was a threat to their system. Much like the serpent in the garden, they saw what God was doing and they hated it. And so they confronted him. And one day, they're arguing with Jesus. This is like their favorite pastime. And one day, they kind of explode on him. And they throw down the Abraham card. They say, okay, look, who are you to talk this way? You think you're greater than our father Abraham that started this whole thing? And listen to Jesus' response because this is just unbelievable. John 8, verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, hey, you are not even 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And John goes on to tell us that that was the moment they decided that Jesus must die because they understood what he was saying. They understood. Don't ever let anyone tell you Jesus didn't claim to be God. They wanted to kill him because of what he just said there. That before Abraham was, I am. They wanted to kill him because they understood he was claiming to be the one who Abraham trusted in in the first place. He was claiming to be the one who made Abraham's name great and who called him those many millennia ago all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And this is why they nail him to a cross because they couldn't stand any human claiming to be the God of Abraham. They couldn't fathom it. It seems crazy that God would step down into his creation. 
And on the cross, Jesus Christ does the impossible. He, from a position of weakness and shame that is meant to break the will of the one being crucified, he picks up his cross like a scepter and defeats Satan, sin, and death and punches a hole out the other side of the grave and said, everything Abraham believed in is true. I am a God of the impossible, not old age, not a bad resume. None of that can stop me, not even death itself. Death itself is being turned in reverse because this is what I do. I've been doing it from the very beginning. I am a restorer of that which is broken. And he proclaims the good news that to anyone, this is in Mark 8, anyone, it's, it's the New Testament equivalent of Genesis 12, anyone who would come after Jesus, if we would go and leave behind our comfortable, safe lives and follow him, he will lead us into the life we long for. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how we struggle on the way. He is a good God who is able to do the impossible. It doesn't matter all of our imperfections and failings. His cross is big enough to cover that. And he says, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll take great care of you and lead you into the type of life that is so full of my blessing that it overflows to those around you. In other words, Jesus came so that Abraham's story can become your story and my story. And what we see from the very beginning is that is a story that is lived by faith. Of daily embarking on the fantastic adventure of trusting him. Of day in and day out calling on the name of Jesus and saying, okay, what do you have for me today, Lord? My life, it's yours. Where are you going to lead me today? Because you're the king of my life. I trust you. Even if I don't see it, I'm going to follow you. I've laid my yes down. You tell me where we're going today. Where do you want me to go? Church, I hope you can see that this is about more than being a moral person that has some Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is great, but we want to be a church that has more than right ideas in our heads about God. We want to be a church that is believing what God has said and trusting what he has said over what our eyes see, where those come into conflict with one another. We want to be a church that actually lives out a fantastic adventure of trusting him that becomes a blessing to our community. Amen? And so I just want to end by asking you some questions. And these are going to be personal questions. You don't need to answer out loud, but... With the Holy Spirit's help, just honestly consider, is this how you would describe your life? Would you say that your life is a fantastic adventure in trusting Jesus? Would you say that you're seeing things that can only be explained by God in your life that in human terms seem impossible? Do you often have conversations with non-Christian friends that they're like, how did that happen? How did you deal with that? I don't understand. This seems crazy to me. See, here's what I've experienced, and, and maybe you have too. Um, when I got saved, my life was a mess. And so I was willing to leave behind my ideas and the life I had because it really wasn't worth hanging on to. So faith was easy those first few years. Uh, but then I grew a little. Um, I got into ministry started to know some things, got married, got a family. And it became a lot harder 
step out on the ledge and into the unknown. It became a lot harder to have a crazy faith. I kind of wanted to have just like a, and again, this wasn't a conscious thought, but I think anyone that's walked with Jesus for any amount of time has had this experience. We're walking by faith. It's not natural anymore. We settle into a groove of going, okay, here's my life now. Here's what I think it should look like. And so maybe our faith plateaus. Maybe we kind of hit that point where we're not growing like we used to. Maybe we stop listening for God's crazy call in our lives and we start putting him in a box. And man, it's not like we go out and do black tar heroin. Like we show up to church on Sunday mornings. We don't do the bad sins. But by and large, we begin to live life on our own terms. And what it usually takes is a crisis or something to shake our life, to reawaken our faith, to remind us what our life is about. And and church, if I have any hope for this series, it is this, that as we look at this story for the next 10, 11 weeks of this man living by faith, my, my prayer is that God would stir in each and every one of us and everyone watching online, that God would stir in us a desire for something more, to leave behind our comfortable Christian lives where maybe we're growing in head knowledge, but if we're honest, our life stopped feeling supernatural a long time ago. My hope is the same spirit who stirred in Abram so many years ago, a desire for a homeland would stir in us to say, I'm sick of living life on my own terms. I long for a homeland. I don't wanna be a Christian that just drags my way into glory. I, man, I wanna shine my way into glory. I wanna live by faith again. I wanna have that fantastic adventure of trusting in Him day after day. My hope is that He would stir that in us and with each and every story, we would see more and more of how he is a faithful God worthy of that trust so that we might grow in our capacity to do just that. And so that's what we're gonna be doing this fall. If you want in on that, I just invite you to bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we call on your name this morning. Forgive us for the ways we so often try to live life on our own terms and what makes sense to us instead of looking to you, the author and sustainer of life. Jesus, thank you for your grace, for making a way for sinners like me to experience true life with you. No matter how many times I stumble, no matter how many times I forget, no matter how many times I lack faith, thank you that your grace is always greater still. I ask for my brothers and sisters here who have believed this good news, that you would stir in us by the power of your spirit of fresh faith. Starting this morning, throughout this series, would you do something in this room, in this moment, to stir in us something fresh? Would you awaken in us a desire to step out in faith and trust you again, to live into the life that you intended for us when you saved us? God, we lay our yes down and say, if you would speak to us, Lord Jesus, we're in. Our life is yours. We know because of your cross and resurrection that you're trustworthy. And so we lay our yes down and say, whatever you want to say to us, Jesus, we want to follow you.
would you grant us the grace to walk in that kind of faith? And God, for those who haven't yet believed this good news, for those who are maybe here trying to figure out what they believe about you, I ask that you would call them just like you did Abraham those many years ago when he was in the far off country. As you stirred his heart with faith to believe, I ask that you would stir that faith in my friends this morning who are here and give them a new life, a life of adventure with you, just like you did Father Abraham. If if that's you, if that's what God's doing in your heart this morning, um, you can just pray these words with me right now. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. And I I want the life that you are offering so I give my life to you. Wherever you want to take me, I'm in. Speak to me, lead me, guide me, care for me when I fail. Be my God always. In your beautiful name I pray.